Well, that is a great big passage, and you'll be helped a lot by keeping it open in front of you uh, as we go along. Shall we pray? Father, your word tells us that in every and any circumstance, your grace is sufficient for us. Uh, your strength made uh, strong in our weakness. Uh, we pray that you would strengthen us this night as we consider this uh, passage together. Strengthen me as preacher and these brothers and sisters, these friends as hearers. Give us your grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is a sad fact that some people who don't know Jesus and reject Jesus uh, do so with serious contempt and hatred for his people. Uh, persecution is the greatest story never told of the 21st century Christian persecution. Um, in recent months, actually, we haven't had to look far for reminders uh, that images of orange jumpsuits and black shadows behind them is all too raw. And whether brothers and sisters in this country or across the world, wherever a person is who trusts in Christ, whether they receive verbal or physical harm, that harm is persecution. And it is in its intent and hope anti-mission. What have we been thinking about as we've studied the book of Acts together? What have we heard at the beginning of the series in Acts chapter 1 verse 8? The Lord Jesus declaring, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. God's people are called, if you like, to continue the ministry of Jesus as his body on this earth in this day, for every day that he gives us. And yet, we've seen in the book of Acts already that there, there are those who are opposed to it. And there are various obstructions that, place, that are placed in the way of the gospel that are anti-mission that try and prevent the spread of the gospel beyond Jerusalem, never mind Judea, Samaria, and beyond. We've seen external opposition. We've seen internal sin. We've seen religious opposition of a strange kind, sourced in jealousy. And tonight we look at a similar kind of opposition, there's a religious tone to it, but it results in the death of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. And it provides for us, on the one hand, a profile of a persecutor who wishes to silence a witness. And on the other hand, a profile of the persecuted who, praise God, refuses to be silenced even at the sight of death rushing at him with stones. This is weighty. 
and this is serious. It's huge. It's a huge text. And I've wrestled with it this week. I've gone backwards and forwards between, oh, I'm going to split it up into three. And I'm like, no, it's a unit. I've got to preach it all. Then I've got, no, I've got to split it up into four. Then I'm like, no, I'm going to preach it as a unit. But I'm going to preach it as a unit. But I figured you needed some help. So I'm going to try and give you three pictures, three three images, if you like, that might help us as we go through it. Uh, And if you're taking notes, here's the roadmap. Here are the three pictures. One, stiff-necked. That's the profile of the persecutor. I'll explain that shortly. Secondly, Christ-like. That's the profile of the persecuted. And thirdly, it's a picture of homecoming. That's what helps the persecuted brother and sister. And uh, so we're going to be moving quickly through this. So let's keep our Bibles open in front of us and let's tackle the first one. Stiff neck, this profile of a persecutor. Luke shows us that there are two things are typical of those who persecute Christians in this text. The first is that they hate any teachings that challenge their own. We see this in chapter 6, verses 8 to 15. Stephen's message has been the very same message of the apostles, the disciples, the rest of the church since Pentecost. The death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because he preaches that message, opposition arose. We've seen that before in the book of Acts. We see it in verse 9. And we see it today. There are so many aspects of the teaching of Jesus that just make people mad. So the theology of Jesus Christ as the eternal Son of God, deity himself, riles many, many people. His teachings make people mad. When you tell someone that they are sinners and that they are, unless they trust in Jesus facing an eternity in hell that makes people mad they don't like that but when we preach the good news of Jesus and his goodness some people hear the things that we say and say wow that starts to make that's making sense but others hear it and they are just infuriated they're incensed and they're riled often because some other belief that they hold on to is challenged now throughout Acts the churches charged the people of Jerusalem with something very, very serious, a serious indictment. Can you remember what it is? It's the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's killing the Messiah. Again and again it's come up. For example, in Acts chapter 2, Peter said, this Jesus whom you crucified is both Lord and Christ. And in Acts 5, the God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus whom you killed. So they are challenged And that's why we see that they resort to tactics that harm their opponents too. So they want to eliminate Stephen just like they eliminated Jesus. They employ similar tactics actually. At the trial of Jesus, you'll remember that Jewish leaders paid men to lie in court. Verse 13 in this text tells us these men did the same thing with Stephen. They produced false witnesses witnesses who testified. And sadly, this has been the experience of many brothers and sisters, both in this country and across the world. They faced the lies and the deceit of others. And it's a hard thing to face, because even without the physical harm, lives can easily be torn apart because of slander and lies. Can you imagine, think about someone that you love dearly. 
Can you imagine your mother or your father betraying you? Because they don't like what you believe. It happens throughout our world and it's heartbreaking. Persecutors will not only turn to deceit, of course, in their to protect their views and harm their opponents, they turn to violence. And we see this in verses 54 and following of uh, chapter 7. Flick over with me and have a look at that. And I jumped to this because I think this passage shows us some of the sca- one of the most scariest depictions of the depravity of a human heart that you will ever see. Towards the end of this chapter, when Stephen has finished this sermon... His opponents, if you like, blow the proverbial gasket, don't they? Verse 54 tells us that they are so furious that they just gnash their teeth at him. Like they just gnash their teeth. They're so cross with this guy. They snarl at him. They hate him because they hate his views and they hate his charge. He's just said, you are stiff-necked unbelievers. But verse 57 tells us, well, Stephen describes the vision of the glory of God that he beholds. We'll get to that later. Look at what his persecutors are doing. As Stephen says, look, look at what I see. Let me tell you what I see, something glorious. What are they doing? They're covering their ears. They're actually putting their fingers in their ears and they're screaming, yelling at the top of their voices. And they rush at him, drag him out of the city and begin to stone him. They are doing everything that they possibly can to not hear the gospel of God and doing everything that they possibly can to silence the one who proclaims it. And I actually think they wanted to kill Stephen from the start, from the point of his, their arguments and their debate. Because when you consider the charges that they brought against him, as he said in verse 11 of chapter 6, flick back there, we have heard him speak blasphemy against Moses and against God. This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place, that is the temple, and against the law. Now, nothing was more important in these times to a Jew than the temple, the house of God, and the law, the word of God. The Jews believed that the temple was the place where God had basically taken up residence among his people. If you wanted to meet with God, you went there. And it was a vitally important place if you wanted to have your sins forgiven. The law was spoken by God himself. If you wanted to hear God speak, you go to hear it read. You listen to it being read. So in short, to speak against the holy place and to speak against God's holy word was a serious charge punishable by death and that's why these persecutors bring it they want Stephen dead and it is endemic in the human heart that people resist the word of God and fight against it just like these guys do in this passage in our culture in our city it usually means the end of a relationship. If people are so anti-God and anti-the gospel that you preach, it usually means the end of a relationship. Or else it's certainly changed. 
Sometimes it means we experience unpleasantness. We experience low-level shunning, whether in work, in the workplace, or in our homes. But in other cultures, you may be called at some point in your life to stand up for Jesus in such a way that people turn against you. And the question then is, how should Christians respond in that kind of situation? Well, persecution aims to silence witnesses. So how will the gospel, the question is always, how will the gospel get to the ends of the earth? How will we reach the yet unreached if we, the witnesses, are silenced? After all, witnesses have to testify, or else we're not witnesses at all. Because Jesus has said to his church, remember, you will be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. But in the face of such persecution, how do we do that? Now you might think, well, that's not really a big issue for me. I don't really face an awful lot of persecution just now. I'm not even really experiencing the kind of low-level shunning that you're talking about. Okay. Uh, You might. And at some point in your life, you probably will. And you might say, well, I'm not really going to, I'm not experiencing the kind of threat that brothers and sisters in Mosul have experienced or in Libya have experienced recently. Okay. But I would like to think that the Lord is still working in our hearts in this local church to send people out to nations yet unreached. So there may be someone in this room who actually will have to face something like that. Might it be you? It's a scary prospect, right? There's a reason why some of these unreached people groups are unreached. It's because they're so anti-God and anti-gospel that they will be severely anti-Liam if Liam goes out. But yet, we must go out. Or else, how will they be reached? I pray the Lord will stir our hearts to go and to pray for these nations yet unreached. Stephen, of course, provides for us this great Christ-like example. How do we cope? What do we do in that kind of situation where we're experiencing persecution? Well, Stephen is a wonderful example for us, just like Jesus in so many ways. He, Stephen, first of all, humbly in this passage, just declares the truth about God this is what's behind his whole sermon you know he knows that he is called to testify to the truth about Jesus and he should never ever stop doing it until the day that he meets him face to face you know people have been imprisoned or sent for a lifetime in labor camps for this kind of view and yet this is what Stephen does he refuses to be silenced he takes two charges that are held against him you've spoken against the law you've spoken against the temple And he gives in this sermon of his, in chapter 7, he gives the religious leaders two answers. Actually, he points out three things. The first thing he says is, actually, there is something about what I'm teaching, and you should be listening to this. You've got this great view of your people holding to this view of the temple and honoring God and this temple. You've got this view of the law. You revere it in this particular way. But he basically goes on to say here that God does not dwell in temples made by human hands. 
And for those who regard the law so highly, you've done a pretty good job of breaking it. That's a summary, basically, of what he's going to say. Okay. Now let me show you where that, let me show you that taking place. To prove it, Stephen takes him through this history of Israel. It's epic. Lots of people, have, I've read commentators on this this, this week that have said, Stephen just goes on a bit of a ramble here. He's trying to buy some time for himself. And I, I, I was like, oh, that's going to bin. Goodness, this is ridiculous. Well, he uses four key figures in Israel's history as four key marker points to directly address the charges of blasphemy. And then, in a stroke of genius, to turn it around to them and say, by the way, the charges are not on me. They're on you. Let's talk about Abraham. One of the patriarchs. They're talking about this temple. This is the place where God dwells. God dwells in the temple. Abraham was still a heathen in Mesopotamia. And where did God meet him? Right there, where he was. He hadn't even set foot in the promised land. Was God with him? Yes, he was. Was there a temple nearby? No, there was not. What about Joseph? That's what you see from verses 9 through to 17, 18. Joseph was a slave in Egypt. Uh, who was with God in Egypt? And my six-year-old daughter answers that question. Yeah, God was with Joseph. And, and Luke makes sure that we, uh, Stephen makes sure that we know that. He says Egypt six or seven times just to make sure. Egypt, 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 Egypt. God was with him. Was there a temple there? No, God was with his people in Egypt. Then Moses Moses, who was in Egypt again, and then on the run in Midian, and then back into Egypt. God had met him, of course, in Midian by the burning bush. But even God met him there. Was there a temple nearby? No. But even as the Israelites experienced great salvation, crossing over from death to life into this new life of worship and walk with the Lord God himself, even when the temporary tabernacle was set up, it moved from place to place and even eventually when this temple was built and it was hatched as a plan in David's mind and it was implemented by Solomon the master builder even Solomon the commemoration of this uh, the uh, inauguration of this temple said the heavens even the highest heavens cannot continue how much less this temple I've built Stephen's answer is crystal clear to them God is not confined to the temple, not confined to one place. What about the law? He said, I'm not speaking against the law of Moses, but if you want to speak, if you want to talk about speaking against Moses and changing his customs and law, let's talk about Israel's rejection of its leadership throughout the years. Let's talk about their, their, the, the, the people of God in the desert and their longing for re-slavery in Egypt. Oh, the meat pots in Egypt. Do you remember that, Ezekiel? Oh, they hankered back after that. They were crazy. They were killing their babies. What was in it? Their sinful rejection of the deliverers that God had sent. Now, here's where Stephen adds the third thing, okay? He highlights a pattern. Israel has a tendency of rejecting its leaders. Israel has a tendency of rejecting its deliverers. Joseph rejected by his family thrown in a pit but rescued in order to rescue his family and God's plan Moses rejected again and again rejected by his people who made you ruler and judge 
I'm out of here, he said. And then rejected for a golden calf. Though he was their deliverer. And Stephen's point is, in the very same way, Jesus was rejected by Israel, though he was the righteous one. He probably was teaching something about what Jesus was, what he had done, and how it impacted on the temple and the law. Jesus himself talked about these things. In John 2, Jesus proclaimed himself effectively to be the new and better temple. He did say, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it again in three days. They were pretty confused. They were like, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. You and whose army of builders are going to reconstruct this in all its glory. Herod had made it pretty. It was very beautiful. But Jesus was talking about his body. And when he spoke to Nathanael, he said to man, you, Nathanael, you will see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. In other words, the house of God. You'll see angels in, uh, ascending and descending on the place where God and man may meet. And he says, it's me, Nathaniel. And what about the law? Well, Jesus has said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. They had it in their minds. The Israelites had it in their minds that Jesus was taking the legs away from the law, that he was tearing it up and so on. Jesus was saying, I have not, I have fulfilled it. There's two ways that you can keep a law, right? There's two ways that you can satisfy the law. Let's take a law. Let's, let's talk about red lights, okay? You can uh, satisfy the law by either stopping at a red light or if you go through a red light, pay the penalty for it, right? I recommend that you go with the former. Now, what Stephen is trying to highlight for God's people in this, what Jesus taught frequently is that he satisfied the law in both ways. He kept it perfectly, the righteous one, sinlessly pure, perfect in every way, without sin. That would qualify him to be our sacrifice on the cross, of course. And when he paid the penalty death it was not for his own sin but for all who would put their faith and trust in him so Stephen turns the charges around and takes the opportunity to declare the truth about God can you do that maybe in the face of persecution the thing that's the thing that's pressing on you most is this desire to just shut up <laughs> don't say anymore who knows where this will go maybe I'll have another opportunity who knows what's going to look like you know this might be the last time that I speak to this person they might shun me shun me entirely but with humility why not boldly declare the truth about God even in that circumstance and boldly point out the second thing Stephen points out where persecutors have sinned even against God the error in their worldview the error in their rejection of Christ and their foolishness in rejecting you the messenger that's why he calls them stiff necked having gone through all this saying you guys you've missed the point regarding God and where he lives 
does not dwell in temples made by hands. You've missed the point. You talk about the law, but you reject it all the time. And you reject the deliverers that God has sent. And here's why. It's actually because you're stiff-necked. Now, this is a farming analogy, right? Back in those days, in agriculture, they used oxen for plowing their fields. They didn't have tractors, obviously. No diesel. So what they did was, they, uh, they had a couple of oxen side by side, and they would take um, a, a yoke, you know, this kind of wooden frame, and place it across the necks of the oxen. Now, if one of these beasts did not want to be controlled or mastered by the farmer, it only needed to do one thing. Stiffen its neck. Straighten it out and, and just rebel against that yoke going on its neck. And that's exactly what these people have been doing. They have had the gospel preached, and this is just months after Jesus has died. They've had three years of his ministry. They've had a continuation of his ministry through the work of the apostles and the followers of Christ who fearlessly proclaimed the true gospel of God's. And yet they have rejected it. But Stephen highlights this for him. Your problem is in your heart. You are refusing to be led by God. You've, you're saying that you, this is the irony of the situation. You say that you love God and are following him. You refuse to be led by him. You refuse to be controlled by him. And you're the ones with unbelieving hearts, uncircumcised hearts and ears, he says in verse 51. You are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. You're always butting against God. You're always rejecting God. That's what persecutors do. And here's where we see their response when he cries out was it ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute they even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one and now you have betrayed and murdered him there's the charge remember again and again and again you killed him God raised him you have received the law that was put into effect through angels but have not obeyed it your disobedience has been crystallized in the killing of the Messiah when they heard this verse 54 they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him but Stephen full of the Holy Spirit looked up to heaven and what did he see the glory of God's and as they rush at him what does he do he graciously prays for their persecutors for his persecutors that's what we should do too if we are facing pressure from those who hate the gospel and hate us because of it the Jews are executing Stephen and he prays, forgive them. Do not hold this sin against him. Sounds just like Jesus, hence Christ-like. And you may never be more like Jesus than when you're praying, God forgives those who persecute you. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, he said. How do you do that? Have you ever thought about that? I find it hard to pray for the guy in front of me who's just cut me up in the roads. 
remember the guy who's really out to get me, spreading lies about me at work? How do you pray for them? Jesus encourages us to pray for them the way we would pray for ourselves. I tell you, I watched a video this week of, uh, of an interview that Sat7 did with the brother of one of the 21 men who, was, uh, who were killed on the seashore in Libya. And this brother told the interviewer that he had asked his mother a question earlier that day. And he says, Mother, if you saw the man who killed your son in the street, what would you do? And she said, Hallelujah, praise be to God. I would pray that God would open his eyes. Then I would invite him into my home. It's incredible, isn't it? what faith Stephen demonstrates to witness even in death even in death he's testifying to the truth about Jesus all the way to the end that has been the case with many a Christian throughout the years let me tell you about a guy called Polycarp he was a pastor in Smyrna he died in AD 155 Prior to his execution, he was commanded to recant his beliefs and curse Christ. And he said, 80 and 6 years have I served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme the king who saved me? And it talks of his, of his execution. John Piper writes about it in his book, Desiring Gods, in a chapter on suffering. Uh, the, the people who were coming as his execution party... Um, Polycarp heard of their arrival, it says, and he came down and he talked with them. While all that were present marveled at his age and his constancy, there was so much ado about the arrest of such an old man. But before they took him, he ordered that something should be served for them to eat and drink at that late hour as much as they wanted. And he besought them that they should grant him an hour that he might pray freely. They gave him leave, he stood and prayed being so filled with the grace of God that for two hours he could not hold his peace. And while they that heard him were amazed and the, man, the, the men repented that they had come after so venerable an old man. When he was finally taken away and condemned to be burned, they tried to nail his hands to the stake, but he pled against it and said, let me be as I am. He that granted me to endure the fire to come will grant me also to remain at the pyre unmoved without being secured by and when his body seemed not to be consumed by the fire, an executioner drove a dagger into his body. The ancient account concludes, all the multitude marveled at the great difference between the unbelievers and the elect. In large measure, this is what explains the success of Christianity in these early years. Some would say they cared better than anyone else cared society and all sorts of countries in that day and age were divided into lots of different areas they didn't really mix, Jews didn't mix with Greeks Greeks didn't mix with Jews but in the church they did that was a powerful testimony the power of the resurrection brought new life to the church and a, a confirmation of what death was and knowing what awaited them 
given that Christ himself had risen from the dead and said, as I live, you also shall live. And that brought a big difference to the way these guys suffered. It's been the case throughout the centuries. People have testified to the truth about Christ all the way up to their, literally, their final breath. And maybe you say, well, that's incredible. I don't know if I could ever do that. Or I might worry that I would deny him or something along those lines. I do understand that. But I think there are things that God's word teaches us that help us a lot. For example, for the Christian, it is not death to die. Death has been transformed by the Lord Jesus Christ for us. Death was something that once brought us real consternation, but because Jesus died and because Jesus rose again, conquering over death, removing its sting, so for a Christian, death does not bring consternation. Ultimately, it leads us to elation, the greatest joy we would ever experience. I love Spurgeon. Spurgeon's a wordsmith. He's a master, and he loves Jesus. And he says this, stingless, death remains among the people of God. But it so little harms them that it is not death to die. And I love this. This is in a sermon. He addresses death. Death? Why should I fear you? You look like a dragon, but your sting is gone. Your teeth are broken, old lion, so why should I fear you? I know that you are no more able to destroy me, but you are sent as a messenger to conduct me to the golden gate of heaven through which I shall enter and see my Savior's face forever. Yes. Yes. In the mind of a persecutor, death is a weapon. In the mind of a believer who has his hope in Jesus and the promise of the resurrection, death is a servant. And suppose we could speak to some of those who have been martyred. Suppose we might speak to one of those in heaven, the 21 Egyptian Christians who died a few weeks ago. We find them blaming God. No, the Bible teaches us that they will cry two things. Salvation and how long? How long until the end? There's an old saying that goes like this, that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And that is true. Death is not pointless. It achieves something. We see that even in Stephen. Stephen was killed, but God used the death of Stephen to scatter Christians across the lands. As a direct result, really, of Stephen's death, as we see, even in the book of Acts, we see Philip meeting an Ethiopian official who would become a Christian and take the gospel to Africa. The church planting center that was the church at Antioch was formed. And Saul, holding coats, destroying the church, by his own admission, later in Acts, we'll say that Stephen's death had a huge impact on him. He never forgot that face. It doesn't say it, but I wonder quietly if, if he believed that God answered Stephen's prayer, forgive them. Well, we, throughout 
scripture can see the church flourish even in the midst of persecution because God uses the suffering of believers to make his name known and we need to know that we need to know it right now in order to prepare us for the time when we experience it whether it's the low level shunning or whether it's something far far more serious and Spurgeon's quote a few minutes ago of death being a servant ushering us into the very presence of the Lord Jesus Christ is exactly the experience of Stephen and this is the final point homecoming this is what makes death gain Stephen looking up to heaven sees the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God look he said I see heaven open and the son of man standing at the right hand of God they're covering their ears they're yelling but he sees the home of righteousness the thing that he longs for eternity in the presence of God and seeing this glory of Christ is greater than a thousand of the happiest lifetimes we are our brothers and sisters who are persecuted even to the point of death are welcomed home by Jesus I love this picture you know in the New Testament when you see any picture of Jesus what is he doing What's his posture like? Have you ever noticed his posture? Yeah, he's sitting. He's sitting. His work is done. His work is done. The work of redemption. But here, Stephen sees him standing. Why? What, is it, what does it mean? Why this change of posture? Well, I believe he was rising to welcome his servant. Even Stephen in this debacle of a courtroom below, while earth was condemning him, heaven was commending him. While earth was rejecting him, heaven was receiving him. And a vision of the unspeakably glorious Jesus Christ welcoming this brother home helped him pray. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And Lord, forgive these people remembering whose arms we are running into when this earthly life is over changes the way we face death and we should be those who prepare ourselves for that and we should certainly be those if in our time of peace we must not be complacent in fact we must use our time of peace to pray for those brothers and sisters across the world who are persecuted and we will do that soon. Well, let's bow our heads together and let's pray to God. Let's respond to him. In the quietness uh, of the next few seconds, take some time to thank him, to praise him, and to ask him for something that he's laid on your heart.